When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast, the last one of the season. All the other ones going forward will pertain to playoffs and everything around that. There'll be extra podcasts involved too, but this is the last one where we're talking, you know, there'll be a bit of playoff stuff sprinkled in, of course, but mostly regular season kind of capping off what has happened here. And to do it with me, I really, it's tough to think of anybody who would be better at doing it because Joe Wolfond, you know, feature writer over at The Score, also a co-host of Pound the Rock podcast. He does NBA and tennis features for the record. And I tell you what, he wrote a piece at the start of the year that so well encapsulated how the Raptors find success. He was the first person to do it. Many people caught on later. Many things were written about it, but he was the first one to do it. And he's written wonderful things about the NBA at large. And he's based out of Toronto. So, of course, he's kind of connected to the Raptors in that way. You've heard him on here many times. Hopefully enjoyed the conversations. You're getting another one today. Joe, how in the hell are you, dude? I'm fantastic, man. That was such a nice intro. I appreciate it. And I, I will, you know, send some good vibes back your way. Because I feel like since we last did this, you know, you, you've you just caught fire, man. Like, you're, you got the gig at Yahoo. You were featured on The Void with Kevin O'Connor, you know, spreading the the gospel of Pascal on the Bill Simmons podcast network, as you said. So kudos to you as well, man. And most importantly, David Thorpe stamped me as somebody who knows basketball <laughs> right. after going on Blake's show and talking to him like he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Once you can get Blake to actually be nice to you online, then I'll know you've really made it. Well, no, Thorpe is the intermediary. He told Blake, like, yeah, do you know this about basketball? Surely you don't. <laughs> but then he stamped me. So Blake, you know, uh, he wouldn't be envious. He would. It was just kind of funny because it fuels the fires between Blake and I. But this isn't about Blake and I. This is about the Raptors. And I tell you what, Joe, I want to ask you the first thing. Cliff notes, the Raptors' success, 48 wins this season. They were not. Yeah, very few people saw them winning that much. The money certainly wasn't there. And they did it. What are the biggest motivating factors you think that caused this outcome? I think a lot of it is the piece you alluded to that I wrote uh, early on in the season, them just absolutely dominating the possession game to an extent very few teams in history ever have, doing it with a sense of intentionality, which I think you and I have, you know, we both talked about it being kind of surprising and unique, uh, sort of reverse engineering it like, taking you know nick nurse on record saying we want to get to plus five in shooting possessions and sort of working backwards from there uh and and getting to that number and actually far exceeding that number in a way that uh, it may not have been wholly organic but it's undeniably worked right like they are unbelievable on the offensive glass and it's 
they can go up against like these behemoth teams, right? Like teams that are ostensibly bigger than them in the front court. And it doesn't seem to matter whether it's just because of their aggressiveness or their sense of timing. A guy like Scotty Barnes, who just, he makes really good reads. He has a, a wicked second jump. I mean, it's, I, I don't entirely know how to explain it, but they're a wonderful offensive rebounding team. Uh, and they force a shit ton of turnovers. And that obviously goes into, you know, a lot of different aspects of their defensive scheme, but that is very much by design. Like that is among other things, like that is what their defensive scheme is designed to do is to turn the other team over. They do that exceptionally well. And then, you know, you look at the offensive side of things and they themselves are a very low turnover team and you take all those factors and what do you get? You get very many games in which they just get a ton more shooting possessions than their opponents. And that has helped them uh, to this 48 win season. Uh, despite the fact that I, I haven't actually gone through to look, but I would wager more than half their games and maybe even many more than half their games. Like they're coming out with a worse effective field goal percentage than the team they're playing against. Like they're, they're 28th in the league in two point percentage, 20th in three point percentage. And somehow they won 48 games. I mean, it's borderline miraculous if you think about it. Okay, and so just since you're the guy, what allows them to access this play style? I mean, length is a big part of it. Speed, uh, you know, obviously it requires a measure of connectivity on defense that we have seen slip at points in the season. Not really lately. That's very much tightened up, but uh, I'm sure people will remember, like, before the new year, there was like a month where they were one of the worst defensive teams in basketball because this high wire kind of helter skelter defensive scheme that they were trying to play with, with frankly, a bunch of new and inexperienced players was just springing a lot of leaks. But I think they'd nailed that connectivity down in the back half of the season. And they just have all these tremendous athletes and also like obviously just really heady players who can pick things up relatively quickly. I think like Thaddeus Young is a good example of that, right? Like I remember the first two or three games watching him just thinking, man, that is out here just trying to play normal defense. And I, the, honestly, I swear there were a couple of possessions where he was like looking around, literally throwing his hands up in the air, wondering how he wound up in this frenetic rotation again. And, you know, credit to him. He picked it up. He figured out uh, how to make it work. And I think there, yeah, obviously, you know, Pascal, I think is a huge component of that and his ability to just sort of cover ground and close space. Um, Fred, in terms of just like digging down on drives and on post-ups, the sticky hands, like <laughs> Gary Trent, um, you know, the, the ultimate low floor, high ceiling defender where it's just like, there's constantly a, like a risk reward calculus there. And I think he probably comes out on the reward side of things um, I think he's on the positive side of the ledger on the whole this season, which is kind of crazy given the risks that he takes, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is personnel driven, so it's not totally inorganic, even though I think the, you know, the word that we've used in the past to describe it is Jerry rigging where like, they're really just trying to get to this outcome, um, without necessarily just letting it play out naturally. 
Um, but they do have the personnel to make it work. And um, I mean, I don't know, like they, it's, it's maybe a bit tacky and trite to say, but like they play really hard. They play with a lot of energy and I think they can kind of just wear teams down sometimes with like, like seriously, you, you guys have like two or three guys crashing the offensive glass again. Like, can you just back off and let us get a defensive rebound? Um, I think there is something to it where they, they just play their asses off and they got a lot of guys with high motors. They have a lot of clearly extremely well-conditioned athletes because these guys aren't just playing a, a really aggressive style of defense and a style of offense that requires them to be in transition more than I think any team in the league, possibly with the exception of Memphis. So they're running a ton on defense and running a ton on offense and they're playing in some cases like 38 minutes a game. It's, I, I don't think a lot of teams could actually pull that off. Um, so that's, that's a credit obviously to the coaching staff, but it's uh, first and foremost, just a credit to the players for, for being able to do it. It is incredible. I sent this meme to Lewis. I think I can't remember exactly when, but it's that famous Kobe meme where it says pass, just get the rebound. And I edited Nick Nurse's face on it because it was like rebounding on offense is the new passing because the Raptors have the worst assist percentage in the NBA. And they're just like, we'll just throw it off the, like the bucket and, you know, see who grabs it. It's effectively an assist the way that they've formatted their offense. And it's so interesting to watch a team, as you say, you know, like bust their ass, run around everywhere. And then you look at pace. They are at a crawl. They play incredibly slow and finding a team that hits all the marks that you said, which they do, that also plays at this incredibly slow pace is just like this weird Frankenstein's monster of a team. You also brought up, you, you say you listen to the podcast. So you're obviously aware of me repeatedly saying Gray Trent Jr., his gambles are measured by proprietary scouting companies. And he, you know, as far as allowing points on gambles across the NBA, he's very, very bad. He ranks really, really highly. So that's like an interesting calculus thing too that I haven't been able to look at as like it scales across the season just at mm -hmm. certain points. And then on top of that, you alluded to Pascal being at the center of so much happening defensively. And I know you have, you know, a decent idea of analytics, catch-alls and that kind of stuff. And I did want to ask, why do you think this year there's such a big disconnect between how you and I and many people perceive Pascal's defense meaning to be like paramount to how the Raptors succeed and why he's not really recognized by defensive catch-alls and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I think without knowing the formulas that actually go into some of these catch-alls, like I'll be perfectly honest, like some of them, I try not to use the ones that I don't understand just because I think that's a little bit dishonest in a way to just like <laughs> to take this shorthand to prove a point that you want to prove when you don't actually know what's going into it. And then when it doesn't line up with what you think about a player, like in the case of Pascal, you just cast it aside. So my, my sense is that like a lot of what those metrics are capturing is like box score stuff, which like, Pascal for as great a defender as I think he is like, he doesn't exactly stuff the stat sheet on defense, right? Like he gets a decent right. number of steals, but he doesn't block a ton of shots. And I think 
you know, probably the team's rebounding rate when he's on the floor is like below 50%. He's, I don't think he's a bad rebounder, but he is playing in this defensive scheme that often leaves the defensive glass unattended, or there's a smaller player under the rim and he's out on the perimeter. So I think that can make it hard to capture where maybe like him being on court correlates with like bad defensive rebounding, even though it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with him. Um, so I think maybe that's, that's part of it, but I feel like his, his defensive on-offs has, have always been quite good. Right. So I would expect that to factor into some of the defensive metrics. Like I know, I know this season, like RPM rates him really highly on defense, whereas like Raptor rates him negatively. And I just don't understand enough, like the actual difference and what's going into creating those numbers and spitting them out to say like, why that's actually happening. But I don't know. I mean, if you have a theory, I would love to hear it because it's really confusing to me. I It's basically the same thing as you is where, well, as you said, he doesn't like Gary Trent Jr. is being measured or is providing defense in a way that is just measured. And his failures aren't measured as a result of his failures. Those failures are measured as a result of the team's failures. Like a, if a point is scored on a possession, if you're taking from box score statistics and kind of cooking up this, this number at the end that says defense, good defense, bad or whatever, or it, you know, it has a percentile that it puts you in, you know, Gary's gamble could only ever result in positive defensive numbers, or as far as how it weighs for the negative and weighs for the positive by the numbers, it's always a great play for him to try and get a steal because that'll be recognized in an outsized way relative to the gamble he's making. And then Pascal is the guy who is like, for the longest time was recognized as, okay, I am chaos you know, an agent of chaos defensively and offensively. I fit in this way next to guys like Kyle, Kawhi, et cetera. But now basically what he does best at the defensive end of the floor is to extend offensive possessions for the other team by mitigating their set actions and making them move to something else. That's not something that's ever really recognized. And so a lot of his most impressive plays where it's this closeout that comes out of nowhere that makes them reset with like eight seconds left, right? That's just not recognized as his thing above the team's thing. And it, and it never, ever will be. Well, it depends on, you know, how much tracking data or, or that kind of stuff is baked into these numbers. Right. But I think that's probably mostly it. Yeah, and I mean, again, without knowing what exactly these metrics are capturing, I can't say if this is part of it, but also he is like in most of the Raptors lineups, like a nominal big man, regardless of what position he's playing on offense, which a lot of the time is like point guard on defense. He's like one of, if not the tallest guy on the floor. So are those numbers seeing him as like the center or the power forward in those lineups? And then looking at the fact that like the Raptors are kind of getting shredded at the rim. And if you look at, you know, his numbers defending the rim, it's like, not particularly impressive uh, for somebody who ostensibly plays that defensive position. Like maybe that's part of it too. Yeah, it could be. It's yeah. It's like the, in baseball, you know, defensive war, the way it's cooked up defensive numbers is like a third baseman. If you just play closer to the line, 
you're going to have a better defensive war, even though it might negatively impact your team because, you know, keeping balls from going down the line, i.e. doubles, is like a huge plus the way it's measured for that. And then, you know, if you like you're getting stuff going into the gap, it might negatively affect the shortstop instead Mm -hmm. or something like that, or it becomes a judgment call on the tracking data, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Anyway, that's yeah. kind of just what I, I want to talk about. But let's move on to the two stars. Well, sorry, can, can I can I actually just make a really quick point just about Hell what yeah. you said what you said about pace? Because I think it it's not totally related, but just in terms of like the fallibility of some of these stats and and the lack of context and what they fail to capture. Like I think someone who hadn't really been watching the Raptors this season would look at that and think that they were this slow plotting team, which isn't at all the case. Like what what I feel like that pace number is showing you is uh, the Raptors get a ton of offensive rebounds and that quote unquote slows them down because the average offensive possession is lasting way longer because they're getting multiple shots at it. And there's also, I mean, to be clear, like their half court offense is very slow Mm -hmm. because they just lack advantage creators. So what winds up happening is like, they have to cycle through multiple actions and multiple handoffs and like weave action and all this stuff to just try and open up some seam and that, that slows them down. But like on the whole, they're not a slow team, right? Like they, they are one of the highest transition frequency teams in the league. And if you look at um, in predictable is a site that actually tracks average time like from the time the possession begins to the time that you take a shot and in that stat they're 16th so like medium pace essentially which is balancing like the amount of time that they're actually running in the open floor with the amount of time it takes them when they're in the half court to get a shot off so they're like kind of fast and slow at the same time Mm -hmm. a a truly unique team and so the next thing i want to talk about is the stars who have led them here And certainly the Raptors have, you know, the same way that their rim defense is democratic and by committee, uh, their offensive process can also seem quite that way, especially early on in the season before Pascal turned into the best player in the world and they just set the offense on his shoulders. But that's kind of what I want to talk about right now is Fred's ascension in the first half. And, you know, we don't have to get into the weeds of, you know, the second half. He's dealing with injuries and he's been a much worse player, but the improvements he made to drive the team in the first half and be just this incredible winning player who, if he's on the floor, he wins minutes. And then the second half, Pascal, obviously basically doing the same thing effectively. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> is, sorry. Is, was yeah, there a question so, in there? Or is... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like what, what are your thoughts on the first half of Fred's season? Like what made his jump? So mm-hmm. like what made his jump something that happened? Like, what did you perceive as how he improved? Right. Uh, two big things for me were the mid-range shooting and just sort of like in between scoring in general, which is something I've wanted to see from him for a really long time. And as the guy who was finally just like the unquestioned primary ball handler, it, it became very clear that he needed to do that more and he did it. And he was really shooting it extremely well from like long mid-range developed like a little bit of the floater game. Although I think more of that was just coming from like the, you know, more of like the 16 to 22 foot range rather than like the, the floater range stuff. But, um, but he was drilling pull up mid rangers and obviously like the three point shooting has always been there, but I think the ability to scale it to the point that 
you know, he was taking basically 10 threes a game. A whole bunch of them were coming off the bounce and he was still well up over 40% until the second half slump hit him. That was huge. And, and I think it's been incremental over the last few years, but the pick and roll playmaking, uh, I think got a lot better. Like the pocket passing was better. His timing, his, his cadence, like all of that stuff. I just think he got a better feel for how to orchestrate the pick and roll. And, you know, he's still not one of these like heliocentric pick and roll operators who like the, the offense is going to revolve around that. And it's going to be like an exceptional half court offense. Like he's not close to that level still, but he elevated himself to a point where at least like he could be the engine of a competent half court offense. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's just a credit to him constantly working to, to hone his game. And I think, yeah, the, the passing was part of that. Um, the, the two point scoring for him is like really, really fallen off in the second half along mm-hmm. with the three point shooting, but even more so, I feel like it's been the two point shooting. And, um, I feel like maybe early in the season, actually the, the rim finishing had improved a little bit. Like, I don't think that was ever what was driving it, but, uh, basically now you look at it and it's like back down where, where he's always been pretty much like 52%. So. I just feel like that's at this point I've resigned myself to feeling like that's always going to be an area of struggle for him. But if he can get back to the point he was early this season where the mid range is still like a viable weapon for him, then I think that becomes much less of a concern. Mm-hmm. I think uh, cleaning, I was looking at it earlier today. I think cleaning the glass has him at 56% within four feet. And, you know, other years, as you said, it's like 51, 52. I do not, I haven't looked at since like, I don't know, December, what he's shooting in transition and versus half court. Because I remember there was a big disparity early on that he was really juicing his rim numbers by getting to the rim in transition. But as you said, like, how often is he getting to the rim now? It's like 8% of his possessions result in a shot within three feet of the of the basket currently. And last year that was even like 16%. It's just, it's way off the cliff, but 37 games into the season, 34 for him. He's shooting 44% from the field, 41% from three and a 59% true shooting for 22 points a game and like seven assists. And he's, he's running pick and roll. He has that portion of the offense just unto himself his playmaking is a little bit more dangerous as well. It's not as risk averse. He's starting to make those, those wraparound passes. He's starting to kind of play with the, the help side defenders a little bit more. He just was so, so good. And then post all-star break, he's shooting 29% on catch and shoot threes and 29% on pull-ups. And the, the knee is very clearly bothering him. I don't know how that, how much that gets sorted out, but for a guard of his size, to be putting up 59% true shooting on such heavy usage and also to be able to kind of take in stride all of the playmaking that came with his role. That was tremendous. That blew me away, dude. Yeah. I mean, it was, and so much of it, I feel like was just punishing drop defense to the mm-hmm. point where like, we really started to see a lot more teams throwing blitzes at him and you know, that wasn't necessarily beneficial for his individual offense, but that was beneficial for the Raptors offense as a whole. I think, um, 
Although I, you know, I'm of two minds about that because I see, or I have seen over the course of this season, like the stat bouncing around where, you know, Fred and Pascal are like, what, what was it like top five or top 10 in the league in terms of drawing double teams? Yeah. And Fred is like, Fred, I believe that Pascal is either, but he's in the top seven, I believe, if not top five at, at the end of the season. Right. So you, you can certainly say that part of that is because of Fred and Pascal and like Fred, when he has the pull up jumper going, you don't necessarily want to play drop against him. And, uh, you know, you, you want to do what you can to get the ball out of his hands. And Pascal, obviously, we've seen, like, can really get cooking from any spot on the floor, you know, whether it's out of the post, whether he's facing up, if he's in the mid post. Like, I think he's a dangerous enough scorer that a double team is warranted a lot of the time. But I would also say that those statistics, like, say as much about, like, the rest of the Raptors roster uh, and and, like, the shooting deficiency more than anything as they do about those two guys. So it's kind of, it's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's do Pascal now. Probably going to make an all NBA team. I mean, I really hope so. He absolutely, he deserves it. 1000%. I think, I think there should be the way he played. I mean, obviously like the whole second half, but just specifically like the last maybe six weeks of the season when Fred has really been laboring. Like it's been on Pascal to carry the offense night after night after night. And to be able to do it with like with zero drop off in efficiency. Like I think his efficiency has on, honestly like improved uh, over these few weeks while he has like continued to carry a heavier and heavier, heavier load mm-hmm. and see more and more defensive attention it's um it's kind of crazy like you i mean i know you point this out all the time right like he he just sees bodies upon bodies and his ability to navigate that and just make the right decision time after time uh and sometimes the right decision isn't necessarily to pass the ball right like sometimes that decision is is sort of just to like wait out a double team and then just go and score the ball himself because he's the only one who can do it and that's what the team needs in that spot. Like, and obviously like the playmaking has, has been there, but I feel like to me that the scoring has been maybe the most impressive part of it. He ended up at the end of the season, leading the NBA in minutes per game, 37.9, 49%, 49.4% from the field, 34.4% from three, which all things considered not so bad. And he did get the free throw shooting up to 75% after it hung around like between 67 and 70 for some time. Eight and a half boards. The defensive rebounding has been huge this year. His contested rebound rate has just been um, incredible. And the 5.3 assists. And as you said, these assists could be ballooned up to as high as like six, 6.5. Because you're looking at a guy who for so much of this season OG's not available. That's a 40% catch and shoot three-point shooter for a guy, you know, to play next to a guy who gets doubled at this frequency. And the second half of the season post all-star break, well, I guess like second, I don't know, the the third third of the season post all-star break, Gary, this dynamite shooter is shooting like 26% from three. 
Fred is shooting 29% from three. This is a guy accessing spaces on the court via wormhole and just like getting to a million different spots on the court that he has no right to be in. And then taking all of the difficult shots that, uh, you know, a less than ideal offense supply starts with and just making those instead, like taking all the difficulties of the context and then deciding I'm going to thrive within these. It, it has been a remarkable season. I, um, it's, it's hard to put into words the way he plays. It's, it's completely singular in the NBA right now. Totally. And I think, man, he has become very reliant on that push shot, you know, from mm-hmm. like, eight to 14 feet, I'll say. And it's just been money for the last few weeks. Like that makes such a difference for him. And like, you know, just the straight up mid range jumper has been there too. But just when he, when he gets below the free throw line and gets a little bit of space and is able to get that push shot off, like he's just knocking it down. And it's hard to overstate, I think how much of a difference that makes for him because like that, that space is just pretty much always available Mm -hmm. to him because like teams are going to want to defend against the drive against him. He is a powerful driver. He's fast. Uh, He has, you know, contrary to popular belief, a pretty decent set of post moves. So I think the defense is still going to try and bottle him up in that in-between space. And he's just been taking what the defense has been giving him. Like he has, he has a real mastery now, I think, of that in-between space. And that doesn't necessarily have to be scoring. Like, we've we've talked about his inside-out passing and what he's able to do, the reads he makes from the middle of the floor. Like, he's just controlling that space right now and doing it at his own pace. Like, it's almost, it's almost DeMar-like in how unhurried he is right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the things when he was sort of trying to find his footing as a number one scorer where you could speed him up. And I feel like that's just not happening right now. Yeah. The point you make uh, when you're talking about outfoxing doubles, outweighting a double, or maybe using like an escape dribble and you re-engage those even on, even on a pick and roll, right. If they blitz or if they're trying to switch anything like that, just waiting. Not, not having to attack right away completely changes how defenses want to defend those. And you put them in a position where, okay, maybe they think they can catch up now and try and play it straight up. And then you attack during that indecision. Like those types of plays are, that is the home of stars. 100% is attacking indecision in aggressive schematic decisions, that kind of stuff. And he's gotten so good at it. And then, as you said, in the short mid range, between four to 14 feet, that's 37% of his overall shots. And he shot 49% on them this year. And a lot of them under, are under duress because those are contested shots, yes. But they're also, as you said, those are the shots that teams are going to give up because what else are you going to take away? This is where you put people when you want them to fail and he's succeeding. It's, it's remarkable, really. And then as far as like managing his time and getting into the middle four, like, uh, you know, Damar... And then managing the middle of the floor, those lanes that are available to him as a passer is a very underrated thing because we think of, well, why does Embiid fail sometimes against the Raptors when they played Gasol? Sure, Gasol is big. He knows Embiid. But why did Embiid fail against the small Raptors team then? 
because Embiid is a lesser passer than Pascal and he didn't manipulate the lanes. The Raptors double, they load up and they present him with lanes and he takes the lanes that they want, that they give up and that they're comfortable like uh, recovering to. And Pascal doesn't take the easy lanes that defenses give them. He works for the more difficult ones that are more rewarding for his teammates, whether it's, you know, a, you know, a lay down to somebody for a layup or playing, you know, playmaking to above the break instead of the corner to create a more open shot. It's just playing and manipulating the second level of the defense. He's talked about it all year in his, you know, post-game stuff about how I don't look at my primary defender. I'm looking at the second level and the the fruit of his labor, I think everybody's eating from it. Yeah, and I think, you know, he, he's obviously not all the way there, but I feel like the the kind of final stage, like the last evolution uh, of a player's playmaking abilities is like you're not reacting to a defense. Like you're making the defense do what you want them to do. And I feel like he's doing that, doing that more and more. Like he's not doing it with the consistency, obviously, of like the the best playmakers in the league. Like if you watch Jokic, it's it's literally like every possession. He is just like moving the defense into the spots that he wants to move them into. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like that is something that Pascal's getting better and better at. And um yeah, it's it's just been really cool to see his growth this year. And especially because uh you know. I mentioned this throughout last season. I felt like he his last season was really unfairly maligned. And so much of what was disappointing about it was just the three-point shooting. And it, and it sort of masked a lot of these subtle improvements that he had made in other areas of, of his game. And I think playmaking first and foremost. And so it's been really cool to see now that like the the scoring efficiency even the three-point shooting to an extent, and especially the mid-range shooting has really come back up. Um, you know, the touch around the rim is back to like 2018, 19 levels almost. Uh, now we've really gotten to see those playmaking improvements shine, uh, especially because of the the attention that defenses are having to pay him as a scorer. Mm-hmm. He's, the, he's the type of player who you can't emulate or recreate on NBA 2K because his job is too difficult. Like Steph Curry, you couldn't you couldn't play like Steph Curry in video games. You couldn't play like DeMar DeRozan in video games because video games have to make sure that the person controlling the player actually does good things to reward themselves. And Pascal, DeMar, Steph Curry in a different way, the shot making is too difficult and they've specialized in this unique way that it's like, oh, yeah, the, the video game, if it rewarded people who did this, it would just be stupid. It's like spammy. It's impossible to stop because how do you take away that spot on the floor? And that's how Siakam has become video gamey in like the best way possible. Yeah. I just, yeah, as you said, he, uh, it would be great if he was rewarded with all NBA. But before we get into the second half of the podcast, which we'll be talking about Scotty Barnes, Precious Achua, which obviously is going to be a blast of a conversation between us and uh, some other unique aspects of the team. Uh, you know, OG Ananobi's year as well. And, you know, the ups and downs that's come with it. Uh, an ad read for you, listener, and and a quick one. So, want to get to the top of your game? Jack Health at www.jack.health is an online service for men's health that handles the doctor's appointment, the prescription, and the shipping, which, by the way, is free. All you need to do is stay home and relax. They've got stuff for sexual health, 
daily health, hair and skin, you name it. Order what you want, fill out some questions and get it stripped straight to you. Skip having to lay out all your medical issues in the clinic waiting room and keep your private business private. Free shipping and easy prescriptions. Boost your game and do it all from the privacy of your own home at www.jack.health. Okay, now that we're all set up with our sexual health and daily health, Joe, let's talk about the health of Scotty Barnes's rookie year and his rookie of the year candidacy. Just the cliff notes of Scotty at all so far. I mean, offensively, like he's been the he's been the best offensive rookie in the league this year, to my mind. Mm-hmm. Just what the Raptors have sort of asked him to do in spots like the self-creation, his willingness and ability to just kind of like take the ball into the post and go and get a bucket. I mean, he, he just goes in and scores over centers like a lot of the time. And I just like his individual offense, like the one-on-one scoring um, his ability to conjure baskets out of thin air has been maybe like the most impressive thing to me. And, you know, the, the playmaking in transition has been there pretty much from the start of the season. I feel like it started to level up in the half court a little bit as the season went along, especially, you know, when they started kind of using him a little bit more as like a, a high post operator, a handoff hub. And I've always liked that look because, the the option to have him just keep the ball was always super dangerous. Like from the moment I saw him do that against the Sixers in the preseason, I was like, Oh, that's, that's super interesting. Um, so great in that respect, you know, the offensive rebounding we touched on yeah, a maniacal offensive rebounder, especially when he's chasing his own misses um, plays really, really well out of the dunker spot, just like a great sense for how to operate in that space how to relocate. Um, and I just feel like a lot of the time, like the ball just like finds him in advantageous spots and, or, or like that's maybe the wrong way to put it because he is the one who is making that happen. Like the ball finds him because he knows where to be. Um, really, really impressive offensive season from him. I am super curious and excited to see where his career goes from here because I feel like it could branch off in any number of different directions. Uh, and I feel like that's, that's the coolest thing about him is like, I still, after watching him for this entire season, don't know what type of player he's going to be. Um, and, and I think that's really cool. I mean, I think defensively it's been a real adventure for him a lot of the time, but he has tamped down some of his spacier impulses I think later in the season like I think his off-ball defense has certainly improved Mm -hmm. Uh, I know you still have some qualms about his on-ball defense which I like completely agree with but um, it's it's a little bit of what you're talking about with Trent right it is like pretty high risk high reward and I think as a rookie like you're pretty willing to live with that and live with the trade-offs, especially because I do think at the end of the day, even in this sort of mistake prone state, he fits the Raptors scheme quite well. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it is that. And that's the same thing with Chris Boucher as well. Like Chris Boucher has made positive. He's made more positive decisions in the Raptors scheme, but 
a big part of the reason why this year is so demonstratively his best defensive year ever is because a lot of the mistakes that he casually makes as a defender are papered over by the scheme. It's why Delano Banton got minutes with the Raptors when on, I don't know, 25, 26 other teams, he probably would have just been a G League guy. It's what is what about you is forgiven in the scheme and what about you enhances the scheme and what is the calculus that the Raptors are kind of running for how you fit in. And Scotty, especially you talked about him, you know, tamping down some of his spacier inclinations, let's say, or proclivities. He's now at this, like at the end of the regular season, I believe the Raptors defense was better with him on the floor than with him off of it. And that is just a crazy thing to say, given where it was at one point in the season and the bevy of mistakes that he was making. Like he's, he's turned it around to such a degree with himself, but also it's just that he fits the Raptors defensive ethos. And then as you talk about, you know, offensively, this guy is just completely unique. There isn't anybody who operates the way that he does. You cannot stay in front of him on defense. Uh, You, you, he's going to bowl you over or he's going to hop step around you. And it could be both of those things at the same time. You just don't know which it's going to be even for centers. As you said, how he deals with being gapped defensively and how he deals with kind of shading, that's still very much a work in progress. And as you said, like the, the playmaking in transition is clearly so high level, but in the half court, there's still steps to be made, especially since we know he makes reads at such high level just waiting to see more permutations defensively so he can, you know, do the neuroscientific chunking so he understands what reads come here, what reads come there. But a fantastical rookie season wherein he did a million things that people either said he wouldn't do or wouldn't do right away. And that's like, that's the best way to describe his season so far is just an absolute surprise, even in the ways that, you know, it's, it's not a surprise. He's still surprised. It blows my mind. Yeah. And just like a really simple thing, but a really important one, incredible touch around the basket. Yeah. I mean, like, like, like the, the angles that he is able to put the ball in at, like, you know, using the backboard and um, like he too, I think has like a a pretty solid push shot, but like, I think he uses the glass a a lot more than Mm -hmm. Pascal does. And I'm like frequently shocked watching Raptors games at like the kind of contorting layups or floaters that he's able to put in the rim because when, when they leave his hand, they look like they have no chance, but he's managed to find some angle. Uh, And that, that is one of the most impressive things about his offensive profile so far to me is like, you know, if he is catching the ball uh, anywhere in the vicinity of the basket, I feel like there's a pretty good chance that he's going to put it in. How do you time up his shot as a shot blocker, right? Because right. he's starting his shot with his back to you and he's not fading away. He's going like, he'll nearly kiss you on the lips, dude, as he's shooting the ball, he's going to jump directly into you. And it's like his shoulders, the front of them are magnetized to the rim. He will square up at any cost. And the bottom half of him flails around. He goes perpendicular over defenders and still Statue of Liberty off the glass, soft as hell, it falls in. It, it is one of the most unique scoring packages in the NBA. And I, I can't really square it 
I can't make sense of it. You just have to kind of sit back and say, this is a unique thing and it exists in this form. Will it exist in this form forever at this rate? Who the hell knows? We don't typically see this. This is his thing, but my God. Uh, Rookie of the year. What are your thoughts? If you had, well, you don't have to say who you're going to vote for because you don't have a vote, I don't believe, but you don't have to say, you don't have to say who you would vote for, but who do you think will win? Uh, no, it's okay. I mean, I, I, cause I did this on pound the rock with, with cash last week. So I've already put it out there that I think that I would give Mobley just the slightest of edges. And I, I, you know, I know that's not going to make people happy listening to this podcast. It's, I think it's so close. You're splitting hairs. I have no issue, obviously. Uh, you know, I'd be thrilled for Scotty to win it. Um, I just think if you were putting it to me and me just like putting on my most objective hat, and trying to think through it, like, and this is what I said on my podcast, like you, you have to take the entire season in totality. And for the first half of the season, I just think the gulf between them was so vast at the defensive end, it outstripped the gap between them on offense. So I look at Mobley and I'm like, that guy really helped completely transform the Cavaliers defense. And he's doing it in conjunction with Jared Allen, um, you know, and to a much lesser extent, Isaac Okoro, but really like those two guys were the bedrock and it's hard to separate one from the other and say, who's the most important defender. Obviously like their defense fell off when Allen got hurt. So that made people think he was the one who was driving it, but I think it was really them doing it together and they fed off of each other. They covered for each other and allowed each other to do all kinds of different things to play up higher on the floor, to switch, to freelance a bit because there was always one guy behind them uh, who could cover off for any mistakes or any slippage. And like that just made them really, really tough to score on. And uh, I I think, you know, Mobley was, I I would probably say Allen was like a touch better and more important as a defender than Mobley this season, but really close. And I think, that matters. Like it matters that for the first half of the season, Evan Mobley was in my mind, like borderline all defense caliber. And that Scotty Barnes was like, <laughs> you know, a space cadet uh, who was harming the Raptors defense on more nights than he was helping it. Mm-hmm. That's um, I really don't like the arguments that people make where it's, it's like, well, actually Scotty is pretty much as good defensively as Mobley. Because look at this matchup data. It, it, it is so incongruent with how defense works in this day and age. Like, you know, the Giannis Antetokounmpo, why doesn't he switch out onto this guy and like slap the floor and guard him in isolation? And it's like, well, Giannis is seven feet tall and he's super effective around the rim. Why would you, why would you put him out on an island with like, you know, Trey Young or Tyrese Maxey or something like that, just because you want to see like this visceral version of defense because you don't understand scheme. Why does that, why does that mean a, a star player has to do it to be recognized by you like that type of thing? But the case that you made like off the jump where Scotty is the best offensive rookie and Cade certainly because of how difficult his job has been, you know, yeah. and this is the case I made when I was on uh, Kevin O'Connor's podcast and I said Mobley was one a and, you know, Scotty was 1B, but Scotty still had time, is that, you know, Cade has the hardest job by far. And Scotty's job is significantly harder than Mobley's, 
but Scotty also has the benefit of significantly less attention defensively than Cade. Like Scotty isn't really going to get doubled. Cade is going to get doubled and does quite often. But I still think Scotty found the the line in between Mobley and the line in between Cade and wrote it as best he could. He started correcting so much of what needed to be corrected towards the end of the year defensively, basically what we've talked about so far in this conversation, that if I had a vote, I would be really, really tempted to cast it for Scotty. Although I don't know if I would give it to Scotty or Mobley, but I, I just really hated the, the defensive conversation around those two because the, the defense still isn't close. But the point you want to make in Scotty's favor is that Scotty just completely outpaces him on offense. And I think that's correct. But yeah, I don't know who I would vote for. I think I have them even currently. So I'm the coward. You came on my podcast and you did the brave thing and I'm I'm doing the, the cowards thing. How does that sound? I mean, fine, I guess. <laughs> like I yeah, I can I can be the bad cop, I suppose, in this scenario. Like I it just doesn't like I, I'm a Raptors fan. Like I I have a job where I cover the entire NBA and I try to do it as objectively as I can. I think I try and succeed in being objective about the Raptors when I write or podcast about them. But the Raptors are still my team. So like, I want them to succeed. I want their players to have success. I want Scotty Barnes to have success. I would love for him to win rookie of the year. Um, but I also just like, can't really be bothered to care that much about this particular award because I'm just like, so thrilled with the season that Scotty Barnes has had mm-hmm. and the way that his arrival and what he already is as a player has changed the trajectory of this franchise that like, we're not like five years down the road, like who's going to care, like whether or not he won rookie of the year, you know? So like, I'm just, I've seen people getting in a huff about it. And I think it's just really small minded thinking. I'm sorry to say, like, I know we all want him to, to win the award because we all love Scotty and it would be great for him, but it's not like some great injustice if Mobley wins. And it's not, I don't think it's some great injustice for somebody to say that Mobley deserves to win over him. It's, it's going to be water under the bridge because Scotty is going to be an unbelievable player for a really long time. And hopefully he's going to do that wearing a Raptors uniform. So like that feels like the, mo- the, the more important thing to me. This is what I'm about to say is absolutely, you know, sorry to annoy the listener perhaps, but this is not basketball whatsoever this is online basketball culture and stan culture has really ramped up how much people care about the rookie of the year award like michael carter williams career did not go any better because he was given that award but whether scotty wins or not he could very well be an all-star on a rookie contract and just like an out and out superstar in the future that completely changes the way that the raptors build their team going forward and all that stuff is like way more important than however the votes shake out. And Scotty obviously wants to win, you know, that, that makes sense. And for his sake, I hope he does. And, but yeah, the, the conversation around it, I've never seen it this juiced up. And I, 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 I am really interested to see like how this kind of stuff develops going forward since right. you and I operate in the public sphere and our opinions are there for constant, uh, I don't know, not attacking, but, constant criticism or intake so i'm i'm very always uh, interested in how that's kind of playing out so but anyway 
Gary Trent Jr., next guy, has made significant steps in Ken Birch's words. <laughs> I've never seen a guy go from being bad at defense to good at defense like that. And truly, you know, Gary Trent made very modest gains as an on-ball guy, and not even in the gambles and passing lanes kind of way, but there are low gamble steals that he makes all the time just by being a ball pressure guy and having incredible hands. And there is no, oh, he's gambling because he never gets called for fouls, like ever. It's incredible. That's a huge plus. And then offensively, honestly, he hasn't made that many uh, improvements from last year to this year, by my mind. But uh, I'm curious what you think about uh, his year. I'll start with a question back to you. Is Gary Trent a good defender? No, I wouldn't say good. <laughs> I, I would say I would say he's had an above average year. Uh-huh. And and uh, that's that's where I would sit, but I would not say good. Yeah, I it's funny because I remember being on this podcast last year and we were talking about Chris Boucher and where we fell on that, like is Chris Boucher a good defender? And I feel like where we landed was he's exactly average, which is funny because you think about calling, you know, somebody average because they're like unremarkable. They don't make mistakes, but they don't make plays. It's sort of like a baseline. Whereas Boucher was like the opposite. Like he was average because he could really make plays, but he could also Mm -hmm. completely unwind your defense by making big mistakes and I feel like that's sort of where I'm at with, with Gary Trent as well. Like the highlight plays, like the, the plays really stand out because they're, they're swing plays. Like they don't, they affect the team at both ends of the floor. Like he gets a pick six and that's just a massive, massive swing. And I don't know, like, how do you quantify that? Right? Like if you, if you hit on like a gamble, and it winds up with like a steal and a breakaway dunk. That's like in a way, like a four point swing. It's you've taken a possession away from the opponent and gotten an offensive possession in which, you know, if it's a clear fast break, it's like, what's the point, the points per possession on that, you know, it's close to two points per possession. So, um, so I don't know how to, like, if, if you're actually just trying to quantify it, like where he would come down on the ledger, I would, I would imagine that he would be on the positive side of things. Yep, um, I, just, yeah. just, just because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I think you just sort of, it, it's, it's kind of like what we were saying with Scotty, what you were saying with Boucher, like you, you just sort of learn to live with the mistakes that come as a result of some over exuberance, over aggressiveness, gambling, all that stuff. Uh, and I'm, you know, you may remember in that piece that I wrote early this season, I actually talked to him for that story. And he was saying that he, you know, most of the time anyway, he's not just gambling to gamble. It's the result of like preparation uh, and game planning. You know, the coach is calling out from the sideline, what plays the other team is running. So he has an idea of whether he's going to be able to, you know, to jump a, a pass, whether, um, you know, a guy's like coming off a screen and, you know, the ball's going from the point to the wing, like he has some sense of what's coming. So it's, it's kind of maybe more of like a calculated risk than it seems like on the surface. Um, so I think, 
he's an entertaining defender to watch if a frustrating one at times. And I think, you know, offensively, he has made some very small and subtle improvements. Like he's getting to the free throw line more. I feel like he is getting, I don't know if I would say downhill, but he is kind of like wriggling his way closer to the rim with more frequency. Like, do you, do you feel that way or, or you just think it's still like so jump shot dependent? So I understand what you're saying by the numbers. That's not accurate, but <laughs> okay. well, right. Like he, he's getting to the rim less than he did last year. And uh-huh. you know, 13% of his shots are at the rim between, between zero to four feet currently. And, but also in clutch time in these high leverage positions, we're seeing more and more that he's leveraging how much players want to contest his three-point shot into downhole momentum. And I think he can't really be asked to get anywhere downhill in a lot of the early parts of the games. But I think that he has made, and this speaks to improvement in process, but not, not necessarily in result, in the higher leverage points of the game, like late in the game, he's definitely able to put a couple dribbles on the ground and put pressure on the rim. It's not an incredible amount of pressure. He's still not a good finisher there. And like, he doesn't have the athleticism to really pop off in that way. But I think what you're seeing is, yeah, definitely a development. That's the result of improvements. It's just, we're not seeing it pop off by the numbers yet, but it's happening in important times. And that's a really, really big deal. And also could loom quite large in this series. Yeah. And I think it's, it's hard to separate like what Gary Trent Jr. is as a player in a vacuum from how much the Raptors rely on him and how much mm-hmm. they need what he brings, you know? So you like, it, I, I just like, I can't separate those two things because I don't know, like in a vacuum, is he a positive player? I'm not really sure, but like he is so necessary for this particular Raptors team. Uh, and so in that sense, like, yeah, he has been, he's been a huge boon, like his, his shot making and his shooting gravity has been so necessary. And you've seen what it looks like when his jump shot is off, right? Like the, the half court offense is such a slog. Uh, They, they rely on him a lot. Um, And it's, it's a little bit scary, like the extent to which they rely on him because um, you know, there, there are downsides to that too, but I think for the most part, like he's come, he's come through for them this season. Uh, and you mentioned him doing it in the clutch and like him doing it in isolation, right? I think he is the most efficient isolation scorer on the team. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I saw Lewis mention that in his preview today, actually. He, he, so, def- he definitely is. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, he's, he's bailed them out a lot of times when they've needed him to. And, um, it's, it's, Regardless of, I guess, how you feel about him as a player in a vacuum, I think it would be hard to say that he, relative to expectations, has had anything but like a really positive year. Yeah, totally. That's that's the biggest thing is like he's he's made improvements, although the, I don't know, I say these things because of the conversation around him. And that that's kind of the idea, right? Is that he, the package and the way in which he scores at times is that of a superstar or at least parts of what a superstar would do, but he absolutely doesn't have it in other ways. And then people are like, well, this guy is like an offensive superstar in waiting. And it's like, well, to, to score like 22 points a game 
he has to shoot like he's Kevin Durant. Mm-hmm. And he's not Kevin Durant. And that's for 22 points a game. And so you're looking at a guy who the Raptors are extremely dependent on. And he succeeded because the biggest, the number one thing that Gary Trent Jr. can do isn't the step back 18 footer that is like, wow, he saved that possession. It's great when it's happening. Sometimes it doesn't. The best thing he can do isn't getting downhill in clutch time. The best thing he can do is shoot 40% on the catch and shoot opportunities that he gets. And especially above the break, because the Raptors have very few shooters who can actually hit from above the break and he saves their spacing. Like he is so essential to all the quirks and rhythms of how they affect defenses and him not shooting like him shooting like below 30% since the all-star break has put just this incredible weight on Pascal's shoulders. Same with, same with Fred. And you've seen what it looks like when they, when they don't have anything else going. And if Pascal wasn't playing out of his mind, it would have been like super depressing to watch the Raptors play like borderline unwatchable. But when he is shooting and it can scale accordingly, like when I talked to Blake on this podcast in February, I think we came to the conclusion that his mid range contemporaries were like Devin Booker, Seth Curry, and Kevin Durant. And that's how good he was. He was shooting like 50% from the long mid range. Now, He's shooting 41%, and that's totally acceptable. It means he shot really bad to get back to 41%, but it's also totally acceptable on the season. Like his contributions over the course of the season, as high or as low as it has come, I am totally willing to accept the variation of the mid-range and have it fall anywhere as long as that three-point shot stays steady on catch-and-shoot opportunities and you know is in a decent place off the pull-up. And he's done that along with being an above average defender, as far as impact, all those things collectively mean spacing, mean offensive punch and mean defensive punch. And what you get at the end of all of that is a damn good player. Honestly, that was long winded. My my apologies. No, no, it's okay. I mean, he's a, he's a very interesting player in a lot of ways. And and in terms of like what he means for this Raptors team specifically, because uh, I, I feel like he's the player that I waver on the most. So uh, it's it's appropriate, I feel like, to be long-winded about him because uh, you could talk yourself in circles trying to decide. Um, I don't know. It's like that that episode of Community when Abed is trying to figure out if Nicolas Cage is good or bad. Yes. <laughs> like, I feel like that's, that's me with Gary Trent. Uh, let's talk about another huge impact player for the Raptors this year. The player who is most highly correlated with winning minutes defensively with dominating defensively the future perennial all defense candidate precious Achua. you and i we are precious pill joe what are your thoughts oh man i have so many i mean <clears throat> the 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 defense is really high level i think in particular the ball screen coverage Whew. like it's so impressive and i think the way i describe it is like there's a real frictionless element to the way that he moves if yeah if that makes sense like yeah like what i mean when i say that is like i momentum does not seem to mean as much to him as it would mean to like the average person or even the average athlete like he's coming up 
you know, up to near the level of the screen or to the level of the screen. Like the, the Raptors will pretty rarely, I feel like play him in traditional drop, right? Like he's right. They'll switch him out or, or he'll be up to the level and like, he'll be coming up and like, you'll see a ball handler will sort of like start to go before he gets up there, whether it's like, you know, rejecting the screen um, or just kind of like, you know, it's a slip, like he's exploding downhill and, and like the ability of, of precious to just like shift his weight and like slide with that ball handler without seeding any ground, like to get up and then get back down without getting beat is mind blowing to me like at his size it's wild so that that is to me like the most impressive thing it's just like in pick and roll defending the screen like great switch defender um but i think can play i don't know actually i mean i i feel like have have you like noticed anything like if like watching him just play i guess like conventional drop like do you feel like he can be effective in that way because i feel like that's not maybe that's not part of his repertoire just yet um but i feel like there are a lot of different things that you can do with him and he's he's excelled at pretty much all of them so i have seen more convent well okay so let not deep drop just conventional drop i've seen him play in conventional drop and I've seen him succeed. Although it doesn't lean on his strengths because conventional drop is your kind of, and deep drop, you're saying this guy's big and like you're keeping that size in proximity to the rim. And you're just saying like, you're this big wall over there. And that's the, and then if people can make plays outside of that, then you get like Rudy Gobert, who's not just a rim protector, but he's a, a paint protector. Like he can just, you know, patrol that area being mobile and also being large and precious can do that, but he's not as effective because his standing reach isn't the same. And it's just, you know, his movement is what makes him special. So put him in defensive uh, situations where his movement allows you to kind of do things, as you said, like playing at the level of the screen, keeping up with guards, switching out onto a bunch of different guys, or even playing three quarter court press on Giannis Antetokounmpo in a win um, playing LeBron James in isolation and quite literally not allowing anything that ends up with anything other than a jump shot, playing on Luca and taking the bump and not allowing it to go anywhere, playing on Jimmy, doing the same thing, just responding in kind with physicality of a big man without ever dropping the fluidity of a wing or guard is really what allows Precious to do things at that incredible defensive level. And then on top of that, just has a really great sense of timing for uh, rim contests and not mm. as a, you know, an incredible shot blocker, but as somebody who just changes shots all the time. And then just really a good leaper and gets his hands on defensive rebounds too. Just doing all of the things that correlate with good defense and then yeah. doing the things that are really special that I don't know a defender like Precious Achua in the NBA. I don't. I also don't know another defender like Herb Jones, for example. But I don't know one like Precious Achua either. Yeah, I mean, rare is the defender who can kind of bang with Joel Embiid, like deny him the ball mm-hmm. in the post, uh, and then also, you know, maybe even on the same possession, right? Like if Embiid does 
does manage to get the ball and it's like a dribble handoff, he can switch on to James Harden or even a Tyrese Maxey and keep up with them and force them into a difficult jump shot. Like that wasn't the most recent Sixers win, but the one before that Mm -hmm. uh, was maybe the single most impressive defensive game I saw from a Raptor this year. Mm Mm-hmm. Like he was, he was incredible in that game, and and I think he also dropped like twenty one points in that game. So. He did. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, looking forward to, to seeing what he can do in this upcoming series because I think he's very, very important to that matchup. Um, but yeah, I think I don't know. I guess another question for you, like, what do you think of him as a low man? Because I feel like you know, if I was an opposing team, I would be thinking like we should probably try to avoid this guy and not put him in ball screen action. (laughs) Like we should try and isolate him on a side of the floor where he can't make an impact. Um, And I feel like, you know, that, that game you love to talk about against the Hawks where the Hawks just sort of went ISO with Trey uh, because going at precious and pick and roll wasn't working. Like, I wonder if we start to see more of that. And if like maybe as a weak side helper, he's still not quite there. The Kawhi Island stuff, yeah, you know, yeah. Hmm. It's it's a good thing you brought up the the Trey Young game because otherwise you you know damn well I was about to. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, do I think that's something that will happen? Certainly, if a team wants to do that and they feel like they have the the personnel on the other side of the ball to kind of make the Raptors pay, like if if they have guys who can, they're not relying on screen and roll then yeah, honestly, why, why wouldn't you keep precious out of the play and kind of make him pay attention to and and have countenance for weak side goings on. And like maybe an exit screen is set on him. Right. And he's Mm -hmm. losing guys off ball, like all that kind of stuff where he's not as good defensively. I mean, yeah, but then you're already in a, a space where teams are just like, you know, we attack offensively by trying to avoid precious Achua. And that is as big a compliment you know, in this conversation as we, you know, we've spent the whole time being like, Oh my God, he does all these things. And if we're coming to the decision, like, well, the best way to attack the Raptors is to avoid precious. Like that's just, if, if teams get there, it's not like the rest of the team is easy. It's OG. It's Pascal. It's hopefully Scotty someday. It's, you know, Fred, Gary, these guys. So that obviously enters the calculus as well. And yeah, I, I don't know how many teams would make that decision, Obviously, Trey, it, it paid off in the game where, you know, the Hawks did. But, uh, yeah, I'd be really, really interested to see that happen. That would be totally fascinating. Yeah. I mean, Maxi is the guy that I would worry about in the Sixers series. Like, he's the guy who can attack without a screen. Mm-hmm. Who, I mean, we've seen in the, in the games this year, like, the Raptors have a really hard time staying in front of him. I mean, everyone has a hard time staying he in front of him. Like rapid in every that, sense uh, of the word. Yeah. So I think if that was going to happen, like he would be the guy. Harden is not that guy at this point, you know, even though I think uh, in that game against the Nets, actually early this year, Harden was kind of cooking them at the point of attack, oftentimes just going without a screen. But like um, he has not looked like that guy at all down the stretch of this season. So uh, I feel like it might be Maxi where you just give him the ball and be like, just break the defense, like go one on one. And um, and then maybe you don't have to do uh the high pick and roll thing but um that that would be yeah. interesting because they'd be they'd be breaking hierarchy to try it out mid playoff series which you know oftentimes can be the right thing to do but is really scary 
to try and put a team through, especially if things aren't going well. You say like James, James Harden, we want to sign in the off season. It's Tyrese. Like that's, that's a big decision to make. And, and right. Tyrese has to do well when you do it too, which I mean, Tyrese yeah. is really good. So who knows, but yeah, that, that would be really interesting. Yeah. Especially if you think about, you know, it's like James Harden isn't exactly like, you know, forming up off of drives and like no, zipping around not. off balls. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, maybe not, but uh, anyway, precious, super impressive defender. I mean, I just, uh, I can't say enough about his defense. And then obviously like, in the back half of the season, like has looked like a different offensive player. Uh, and the three point shooting has been instrumental to that. I think in multiple ways, mm-hmm. the biggest of which to me is, you know, all the stuff we talked about early in the season about him, not understanding how to interpret space, him getting in other people's way and um, just not really understanding how to leverage the inattention, uh, the inattention that, opposing defenders were, were giving him like uh, and find open pockets of space and make himself useful. I just think that becomes so much easier when he can just sort of like drift and like find a pocket of space on the perimeter and, and hit a catch and shoot three. He's a guard. He like, it would be like if you asked a kid who played point guard and obviously precious isn't a kid. He's a very accomplished player. But even if you ask me, for example, when I, when I lived in Mexico and I happen to be quite a large person for Mexico, even though I play point guard my whole life. They, I went to this like semi-pro team and they wanted me to set screens and roll. I got to tell you, I sucked at it, dude. I was like, oh, I don't know how to operate in this space whatsoever. I know I'm a ball player. I should be able to do anything, but I sucked at it. And Precious, the way he attacks closeouts with the handle, the way he drifts into space, the way he tries to isolate. This is a guy who's so clearly wired to operate in the offensive space as a wing or a guard. And he's definitely still doesn't have uh, the timing, the pacing and the awareness to work on the inside with, a, you know, as a, as a role man and to do it well. No. But as, as you're saying, like you hit the nail directly on the head. If he hits threes, it simplifies everything he does offensively to that three point punch and then attacking closeouts which the three-point punch obviously just ratcheted up to elite very quickly, How, where, where it settles, who knows? And the closeouts have good and bad, but like he just, he just became a positive offensive player overnight. It was outrageous. Yeah, and I mean, it's been, you know, I think primarily driven by the three-point shooting and what that opens up, you know, whether it is like he's mm-hmm. no longer making those kind of gaffes off ball because he, he knows where to be and... um now he's drawing closeouts and is able to attack them. But I think also like, first of all, the finishing at the rim has been better. And I don't know what specifically to attribute that to, except just maybe like improving feel somehow with more reps, but like um, making just like more decisive moves, like quicker decisions in general. Uh, I think in the early part of the season, like him bringing the ball up the floor was an adventure that I wasn't happy really to go along with, but I feel like there have been more positive instances of that recently than negative ones. Like he's actually, he's bringing the ball up and I'm excited to see what's going to happen rather than just like dreading the inevitable mistake. Um, I think he's been better in a lot of different ways and 
his, his just overall progression over the course of the season, I think has been uh, one of the best stories uh, on a team with, with plenty of good development stories this season. So mm-hmm. really cool well, player. And, and that three point shooting does allow you to kind of swallow mistakes. Cause the other game, I can't remember who was against. He had five turnovers and a lot of it was just like dribbling the ball away. Oh, actually it was the second game against Philly or the last mm. game they played against Philly. He had five turnovers and a lot of it was just like freestyling. But if you hit threes and people understand that, you know, you're providing other things, finally, you know, people recognize that he's like a really good defender because it takes a while for the fan base to come around on defense. Like, especially if they see you as kind of this bumbling, dumb player, it's hard for them to believe that, you know, you're good at defense. But it's it's been really cool to see Precious get like a longer leash, not only with the coaching staff, but with, you know, public perception and stuff like that. And his floor is so high because the defense that like anything he gives you offensively is just, as you say, he he ends up as a really cool player. How he performs in the playoffs comp- radically swings what the Raptors fortunes are. Like if he can play 30 plus minutes a game in that Philly series, Philly, that's tough because he's really going to bring it defensively too. And uh, yeah, so that's, that interests me to no end, but uh, back end of the, or just end of rotation guys, Boucher, Thad, uh, any thoughts? Uh, I mean, you, you've talked about Boucher a lot this season. I don't feel like I have anything to add. I think he's been wonderful in his role. Um, I, I was like really worried about Thad after his first few games. Cause he Me looked <laughs> rough, like rough. And I was like feeling like an idiot forever defending the trade and like being happy. They got Thad. I'm like, this guy is washed and he's completely turned that around, which has been great to see, especially, you know, for me as a longtime Thad lover. So um, I'll just say that I, I think the the precious Boucher Thad trio has really been, you know, one of the delights of this season for me. I just like, I love watching those guys play together. It's pure chaos. You're a Thackalite, right? That would, that would be the joke to make. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> sure. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. That that is in, incredible, right? That the Boucher precious thing became a thing so much that I I was very close to writing like this. Boucher is the big man whisperer article because Boucher next to any big man was turning out really well. But then I was like, no, 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 just make it about Boucher. And it's man to see Boucher and Precious pop off, and you're like, oh, it's working. And then to see precious boucher and thad pop off and you're like oh it's working you're like what the hell how do these guys find success it's such a weirdo team and yeah seeing boucher find success i mean i've talked about it lots i've written about it a decent amount he's just been tremendous but thad i was in the exact same boat as you where i was like okay they gave up quite a bit relative to what guys are getting traded for you know i wasn't particularly pleased about what they gave up but i thought okay, Thad objectively is going to have something to give. That's a rotation piece, 100%. And then he wasn't. And I was mm. like, oh boy, not only is this guy not providing a lot, of the thought I, a lot of the stuff I thought he might, the Raptors aren't using him in ways that he's typically been used in the past. And he's turning the ball over a lot. I was like, uh, this seems super bad. But then all of a sudden, you know, he snapped the fingers 
he's defending guys in space better than Gary and Scotty do. And he's just becoming this immensely cerebral defender in the scheme. And that length and that grit and that tenacity is just, oh my God, this guy helps out so much. Like even the, the game against the Knicks, he was a plus 16. He had like yeah. five points, four boards and three assists. It's just, he, the idea they had of Thad when they trade for him of just like plugging in obviously was the correct one. And what it looks like in the playoffs, I'm extremely excited for. But seeing this this lineup, they march out with just no point guard, and it's just Pascal carrying the load. And then even to look at a bench that has Precious, Boucher, and Thad coming off of it, and basically nobody else, is fascinating. I we we haven't seen a team like this. It's it's truly unique. Yeah, and by the way, with Thad also. Wedding threes, like shooting 40% yes. for three <laughs> yes. after not hitting a single three with the Spurs this season. Like, just uh, just a crazy development. I mean, basically, you mentioned the, the shooting struggles that both Gary and Fred have had after the All-Star break. Here come Thad and Precious, right? Like the two most reliable three-point shooters on the team post-All-Star break. And somehow that works. I don't know. It's like got to be the weirdest team in the league by like several orders of magnitude. Thaddeus Young, 45% corner three-point shooter. Like there you go. Bet your life savings on it. That that type of shooter. Just absolutely outrageous. And after being classified as a big by cleaning the glass for like I don't know, 9 years in a row, he is now a forward again with the Raptors. <laughs> Just a, a fun little tidbit. And honestly, like Chris Boucher is probably really close to being labeled as a wing. You know, it, I think it's basketball reference. I think a lot of the places that go by, you know, like, oh, yeah, what are you playing? Uh, Chris Boucher has played, like, a decent amount of shooting guard this year per their idea of what roles are and, like, positions are. Just those two plugging in has been so much fun. But, yeah, we're we're at the end of it all, mostly. Do you have any other uh, fun things you like about this season? Oh, man, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, I... Yeah. <laughs> we took we took we took some time man and we always do i was i was very silly to think otherwise yeah um i i it's actually not i mean it, it's tangentially related to the raptors but i'll just say that um the grizzlies are actually doing a lot of the same things that the raptors are in terms of the possession stuff and i'm super fascinated to see how that goes for them in the playoffs and so I'm like, you know, I guess I'll, I'll spoil this. Like I'm working on a piece about it now because Hell I wanted yeah. to, I, I wanted to, uh, it's, it's like pretty surface level. Like I'm not digging into film or anything like that. I mean, I've, I've like watched a lot of Grizzlies this year. I wrote a big piece about Jaron Jackson Jr. Uh, who I think should win defensive player of the year, by the way, but Hell like, yeah. this is like strictly about numbers and figuring out, um, because I feel like there is this notion where the game becomes so fundamentally different in the playoffs. It's not up and down. It's a half court game. All these things that like, you know, certain types of teams rely on in the regular season fall by the wayside. And like the Grizzlies finished third in the league in offensive efficiency this year. If you look at cleaning the glass in terms of like their first shot, half court offensive efficiency, they're 22nd. Like that is absolutely insane. 
to be 22nd in first shot half court offense and third overall. And they're doing it in like a lot of the same way as the Raptors are, which is just, they absolutely pummel the offensive glass and they don't turn the ball over. Uh, and they, and they play a ton of their possessions in transition. So does that stuff actually dry up in the playoffs? Like this is relevant to the Raptors too, right? Like does that stuff actually dry up in the playoffs or is it actually like a constant? Is it something that carries over and can be sustainable? Um, that's sort of what I'm trying to figure out. And I'm, I'm interested to see it from the Grizzlies because I feel like that might offer a window into what this could look like for the Raptors moving forward because they are doing all these things. Uh, you know, they're, they're dominating the possession battle to nearly the same extent, but they also have all these things that the Raptors so clearly and sorely lack, you know, uh, an elite off the dribble shot creator in John Morant, um, a ton of guard depth in general uh, and, and like a legitimate honest to God, seven footer who, uh, you know, controls the glass at both ends of the floor. Like if the Raptors had those things, would they continue playing this style and, and having success with it? I feel like I, I look at the Grizzlies and it's not going to look the same for the Raptors. Like, I don't think they're going to wind up with a player, anything like John Morant. Um, but I think it, it maybe is like a glimpse into the near future where it's like, if the Raptors manage to acquire some of these things, and balance their roster a little bit better or a little bit differently. Um, what could that look like? And could that breed postseason success? I affectionately refer to it as Hank Ball because Hank Ward, Henry Ward, who is now with Sports Info Solutions and does the podcast over there. But when his stuff was in the, the public sphere, he was like the biggest proponent of this style of basketball. And to see it, you know, the Memphis... Miami and uh, the Raptors trot out a lot of the, uh, I guess the tropes of, of what I call Hank ball, what some people call, most people call long ball. And uh, to see them all succeeding with those things is like fascinating. And as you say, trying to, I use these playoffs as like a case study for where's the carryover when the game changes, do these things. That's, that's awesome. It's, it should be super fascinating. And I love that you have Jaron Jackson as a defensive player of the year, that was a big, that was one of the qualms I had with uh, public perception early on in the season when the Raptors lost to the Grizzlies and everybody was like, Oh my God, how could we lose to the Grizzlies? And I was sitting back like, wow, the Raptors just lost to a team that had an incredible performance because Jaron Jackson Jr. Said, if you're within 18 feet of the rim, you will do nothing and you will like it. And it's just been more and more of that this year. He's been nuts, dude. Yeah, he's uh, the uh, it, Mike Prada, who who I really love, uh, and who I think you you had on your show actually recently, um, and it's just always great. He wrote a piece a few years back about Anthony Davis, where he called Anthony Davis the, the NBA's ultimate portable rim protector because he was like protecting the rim at the rim, but also like away from the rim because of all the things that he could do to sort of stop the ball and prevent penetration on the perimeter, and like that's now Jaron Jackson, like that's what he has become, I think is like the NBA's ultimate portable rim protector. You're never too far away from being an incredible defender when you have the tools because Jaron was just not that great at defense. And now he's world ending blows my mind a little bit. 
It, like yeah. he, he was, he came out of college and everybody's like, yeah, he's, he's going to be an incredible defender. And then he wasn't. And then all of a sudden he was coming off of flares and like pin downs and he was getting handoffs, you know, six feet above the break and hitting triples. And it was like, well, maybe his career just looks different than we thought. And then he's like, oh no, uh, the defense now. And just like, hell yeah, good for Jaron. His, his low post podcast was so good. He was so candid, man. I, I'd never heard a, a player do a, an interview like that, to be quite honest with you. He, he gave so much more than every question asked of him. He was so giving. God, what a thing. But uh, any, yeah, Joe, do you have any <laughs> parting shots? Uh, no, man. I, I think at this point I'm tapped out. We've been, I don't even know how long we've been talking for, but it's been a, a while. Uh, I should probably get to bed. Um, but uh, I, I just want to tell you, I appreciate you having me on. I always enjoy our conversations immensely. And um, I just, uh, I, I, you don't need me to tell you this, I don't think, but you've done such incredible work this entire season and it's been really cool to see it get recognized the way that it has recently. So, Oh, thank you, man. That's, that's incredibly kind. And as you say, like you enjoy these talks, I do as well. Listener, uh, do yourself a favor and make sure you follow Joe on Twitter. Is it Joey underscore W? Joey, wait, 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 Joey. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that's a good place to put the podcast. But thanks for being so gracious and giving with your time, man. Obviously, this went pretty long. But anyway, I'll let you get be- get to bed. I'll let myself do some editing and then bed. And uh, yeah, we'll get out of here. Joe, thank you, man. Thanks, Sam. Okay. And listener, whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and uh, goodbye.